0: Morning, House. First Timothy eight through fifteen. Second, First Timothy two eight through fifteen. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self control, not with braided hair and golds or pearls or costly attire. But, with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works, let a woman let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet for Adam, who formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Well, good morning. <laughs> I hope y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that uh, you didn't catch Christina, we're going to find ourselves in First Timothy chapter two. Uh, we're looking at verses uh, 8 through 15. A couple of quick updates for you. The first one is if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you or have the opportunity to pray for you. So we would encourage you to fill out one of the connect cards and drop it in the connection desk, which is over here to my right or my left, your right. Um, In addition to that, if you don't have a Bible, uh, we'd love to hook you up with a Bible. We love God's Word. We love to preach from God's Word. Uh, Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So please allow us to let that be our gift to you. Other than that, we have a lot to work through this morning, so I'd like to dig into our time. There's a, there's a quote, an expression uh, that I was trying to find. I know I've heard it before. I'm sure you have, maybe. Uh, it was at one point a fairly common expression or a, or a common quote in many churches, and it went something like this. While Adam was away, can y'all finish it? Eve was led astray. Something like that. I could be butchering it. I was like trying to find it cause I was like, I know it goes like this, something, but I could have butchered it. Nevertheless, The idea behind this quote, or at least this thought, the idea behind it suggests that in the context of the Garden of Eden, Adam was out doing manly things like chopping wood, and uh, Eve was journaling among the flowers, and then eventually Satan shows up on the scene, and Eve is deceived, and she sins. Corruption and sin then enter into human history, and ultimately what it teaches is that all of this could have been prevented if Adam was with Eve. If only Adam was there, things would have gone differently. It's quotes, beliefs, or expressions like this that have tragically dismissed, diminished, and disheartened women in the church. Women have been dismissed because churches and leadership consider them ineffective and inferior. Women have been diminished throughout the pages of history because of terrible theology. And women have been left disheartened because of burdens God has clearly placed on them, only to be told to be quiet. And so before we get going, ladies if this has been your experience, particularly in the church, I am so sorry. I am so sorry if this has been your experience in the church. If a man has told you anything like that, much less a pastor, they're dumb. And in the Greek, it's called stupid, and in Spanish, it's something worse. (laughs) Our text this morning centers itself on the roles of men and women in the church and to a degree in the home. The majority of our text as you heard will be geared toward the ladies. So, hermanas, I want to give you a heads up. My prayer this morning, my prayer this morning is to preach the word of God to you faithfully, as faithfully as I possibly can. My hope is to build you up as best as I can. And my love for you as your pastor, as your brother, as your friend is to challenge you in a few ways, as graciously as the Lord will allow me. And gentlemen, you're not off the hook. I hope to love you as your pastor, as your brother, and as your friend, but I wanna challenge you all the same, as graciously as possible, with exhortation that is dependent on the Holy Spirit. Therefore, as we walk through our text, we're gonna consider two things. And this is seen, This is; these two things are the thread of the text. And it is posture and this fancy word called piety. Posture and piety. Each time you hear this word, here's what they mean. Posture refers to the condition of your heart. To the internal condition of your heart. Piety will refer to to the way in which you live. Since we have started 1 Timothy, I have told you that we cannot divorce belief from behavior. Posture and piety, the internal working or the internal condition of the heart, piety, the way in which that is lived out. Why does this matter? Because godly posture and piety are the marks of a heart and hands surrendered to the word of God let me say that one more time. Godly posture and piety are the marks of a heart and hands that have surrendered to the Word of God. So let me pray, and we'll dig into our text this morning. God, as we come before you this morning, let us not forget that you are good, that you are gracious. Therefore, God, as we come before your word, may we come forward hungry but humble. May we come uh, before you teachable. May we come before you ready to be comforted by your Holy Spirit, but also ready to be convicted by the Holy Spirit. May this comfort and may this conviction draw us closer to Jesus so that we would be more like Jesus. God, for those who are here and those who know Jesus, may our time today draw them closer to him so that they would know him better, so they would grow in their uh, relationship with Jesus. For those who are here and who do not know Jesus, I pray that through your word, you would call them to yourself, that they would come and know Jesus. And so we thank you for a morning like this, one that has been filled with grace and mercy and we praise you, and we thank you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, here we go. We're gonna begin with posture and piety. Okay, remember I told you that? Posture and piety in the context of character. Posture and piety in the context of character. Okay? We're going to park for a minute in verses 8 through 10. But before diving into them, in the event that you weren't here last week, let me give you a little bit of context. So we began chapter 2 as Paul now begins to become much more practical with Timothy and his mission. If you remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is stationed and pastoring a church in Ephesus, right? And so Paul is telling Timothy that he has sent him there to both correct and, or I should say, to both confront and correct false teachers within the church. Paul tells Timothy to hold fast to faith and good conscience in order that he does not go astray in the faith. And the first way in which he holds fast to faith and conscience, as we saw last week, the first way in which he does that is by beginning his ministry to himself and the church with prayer, because the Christian life begins with prayer. And that's what we looked at last week. Now, in this section, Paul turns his attention toward the roles of men and women in the church. And in these verses, as we look at eight through 10, he's still tracking with prayer, all right? He's still tracking with prayer. So we're going to examine posture and piety in the context of character. So let's begin with verse eight. Verse eight, I desire then that in every place the men should pray. We're going to park there for a little bit. This word desire is not a suggestion. This is an authoritative command coming from Paul to Timothy to give to the church, and he is telling the men in the church that they should pray. So Paul begins by addressing the men because Paul expects the men to lead from the front, to be the spiritual leaders in their home and in the church. You see, when the men of the church gather to pray, they are very much humbled. We looked at this last week, that when we gather to pray and when we approach God in prayer, we are unmasked. All of our fears and our criticisms and our cynicism and our pride is revealed in prayer. Now, you do that in the context of a group with other men, all of those things are going to surface. And when they surface, men are humbled. And when men are humbled, they are encouraged. And when men are encouraged, they are teachable. When men are teachable, not only are they able to receive instruction, they're able to impart wisdom and instruction onto others. But there's a problem. The problem is that most men in the church are either passive or prideful. And in part that's what Paul is getting at in this section as we see in a moment or we'll see in a moment. So when it comes to passive men, these are men or individuals who do not lead themselves, are incapable or unwilling of leading themselves, their wives, their children. They have zero clue how to protect their families physically or if they're good in that department because they're great hobbyists, they have no idea how to protect their families spiritually. And oftentimes, things like theology and the Bible are just given to the women, that the women are the ones who are supposed to figure it out. And we're surprised that 60% of churches in America are, are composed of women and children, which I love and we'll get to in just a minute. But men, you don't know your Bibles, which means you can't spiritually protect your family. Too many passive men just don't like certain things. They don't want to lead because it's an inconvenience. And men don't want to be inconvenienced because then it reveals their character. And so what do men do? They isolate, they withhold, they play video games, they do escapes find themselves very interested in those escapes. They even post about them. They even might put some cool manly quotes, but it really is just a boy who's afraid. And if it's not passive men, we have prideful men in the church. Also those who don't lead themselves well or their wives or their children because arrogant men are dangerous boys. And just as much as the passive men, they're self-righteous, they're controlling, they could be manipulative, they are domineering. And while these two types of men certainly exist and tragically they exist in the church, it seems as though Paul was focusing on the prideful men because it seems as though these were the kinds of men that were teaching teaching and spreading the false teaching at Ephesus. These problems that Paul is ultimately having Timothy address is because they were caused by men In addition to that, Paul tells him, so I want you to pray, and I want you to pray this way, by lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. We're going to split up holy in hands. The word holy here refers to the posture of prayer concerning the heart. James 4.8, I don't think this is on your notes, but James 4.8 says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so James is telling the church, Paul is telling Timothy to tell the men, he is telling us that men, we ought to have a pure heart. That is the posture upon which we approach God. A pure heart, a clean heart, a confessional heart. That is the posture upon which we approach God. And then the word hands has to deal with the worship of the Lord through prayer as a result of a pure heart. It is difficult to pray for your enemies when your heart is cold and bitter. It is difficult to walk in compassion when you are bitter and resentful. Prayer reveals those things. And so when Paul says, lift your holy hands, he's saying, man, may your heart, may your confessional heart, may your pure heart, may that posture be consistent with the piety of the work of your hands. And he says to do so without anger or quarreling. See, because men were the ones causing the problems within the church at Ephesus, they were causing this thing called dissension dissension is disagreements but not debates it's not fruitful kind of debates it's disagreements that lead to division and bitterness and separation and so these men are arguing with one another these men are starting things up with one another and for these men and many of the men in our church that's right man I'm talking to you specifically now for these men and many of the men in our church they rather be right than reconciled they rather throw fits like children instead of approaching one another with grace and truth. And when arguing and dissension and passivity and bitterness and cre- like creep into the church, it hinders prayer. It hinders prayer. So gentlemen, it hinders your prayers when you think that prayer is solely for leadership. And so your heart grows more passive and more distant, affecting the way you lead or don't lead your family. Your prayers are hindered because some of you are arrogant. You think that God owes you something. And as a result, you've grown bitter. You've grown bitter toward one another. And you might even say things like, why would I approach so-and-so? It's not gonna change anything. Jesus himself talks about it. Hey, I don't want your offering if you are in conflict with another brother. Leave that here and then go talk to your brother. Some of you are proud and arrogant and so your heart reflects that and your hands are pretty dirty. Your prayers are hindered when your heart is bitter toward your wife and your family. This is something that is consistent with 1 Peter 3. He tells the men in his church that, hey, if you do not love your wife well, if you do not lead her in the way of the Lord and point her to Jesus, your prayers will be hindered. that's what happened that's what happens when men in the church do not lead by praying but when men pray the home and the church are led well they're led well because humble men aren't just teachable men they're men of conviction able to receive instruction and in, ter- in, in turn able to impart that wisdom and instruction onto others so when we consider posture and piety the posture is your clean heart your pure heart your confessional heart you approaching god in prayer We don't, we don't need more men who complain. We need more men who confess. That's the posture Paul is talking about. And the piety that you lead by praying. That you lead with confession. Posture in piety, gentlemen. Posture and piety in prayer reveals your character between your home and your church. And so now, Verses 9 through 10, Paul changes or turns his attention to the ladies. And he opens up by saying, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair, gold or pearls or costly attire. We'll park there and then go to verse 10. I want you to notice the word likewise, meaning Paul is still on the same track. We're still talking about character. Posture and piety. When it comes to character, he's still on that same track. Just as he's addressed character in the context of prayer with men, now he's going to address character toward women in the context of godly living. And so he begins by telling the women to dress modestly and with self-control. I don't think we have this issue at Storehouse McAllen by God's grace, but we're going to go through the text because that's what we do. So we're going to go through this text. He tells women to to dress modestly and with with self-control. And so when it comes to this text, particularly verse 9, we need to consider what is cultural and then what is timeless. What is cultural and then what is timeless. And so beginning with what is cultural, what is one thing that is cultural? Fashion, right? Fashion is a style. It's a fad. It fades and it's temporary and it's always changing. My wife watches this show something about models. I don't know the name of it. I've only seen clips. Anyway, they're in competition with one another, right? And they're in competition with one another and they have to style their models and they have to come up with these really uh, unique designs of of dresses and shirts and all this stuff and whatever. They have like a budget, all this stuff. And then they come before this judge or his panel of judges and the panel of judges will give them critiques and stuff like that. And like, they're so harsh with these people, right? And so one of the things that I've seen them say is like, they'll, they'll present like, oh, this is my model. They're wearing X, Y, and Z. And I saw this one judge go, that is so 2001. Like, how dare you? Like, disgusted because that was a fad? That was a trend? How dare you bring that into this age? And it was just hilarious. But that's the point, right? The point is that fashion fades because it's temporary. It's constantly changing. And so when Paul addresses fashion in the context of jewelry or pearls or braided hair, uh, it's not so much that he's against a particular type of fashion. It's the motivation of the women wearing it. In other words, it's not that women can't dress nice and it's not that you can't get your hair did. It's that the women in Ephesus, it seems, were dressing in a way that was inviting in a number of ways. Number one, it was based on attention. In other words, they dressed in a certain way so that they would garner attention, not just from men, but other people. They wanted the focus to be on themselves. Another way in which it was inviting is through affluence. So, if it wasn't look at me, look how cool it is, it was look at me and look how much uh, money I spend. So, one of the things Paul talks about is costly attire. In other words, they were showing off. They were showing off them heels, them pearls, them Benzes, right? They were showing off their wealth. And this isn't necessarily something that was like, unique just to the women in the church in Ephesus. This was a cultural thing happening in the city of Ephesus and now it's coming into the church and that's why Paul is addressing it. He addresses something similar in chapter six of this same book. The third way in which they were inviting was through temptation. In other words, the way in which they would dress was not only without modesty, it was without self-control. And so what that was doing, it was turning heads And so Paul's argument in this and these motivations, he's saying, hey, when you do this, ladies, you take away from the receiving of the word, you take away from the worship of the gathering, and in part, you affect your character. He's not just addressing how women ought to dress in the context of the church, Women are being won over by this culturally. And so Paul addresses their hearts and their character. And so if you're asking, well, do we have a dress code at Storehouse McAllen? We do, modesty. That's the dress code. But Paul continues because he roots his argument by contrasting what true beauty really is. Let's go to verse 10. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he roots his argument by contrasting what true beauty really is, meaning beauty is not centered in appearance, but the heart. A heart that has been specifically changed or transformed by God. A heart that specifically loves Jesus. He's saying, hey, that's the value. And this isn't unique to Paul. Peter, once more, says something similar to his churches in 1 Peter 3 do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or clothing that you wear. So he's saying, don't let yourself be known by the external. He continues, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. That imperishable beauty is the gift of the Holy Spirit that you have received because of a heart that's been regenerated by God. He's saying that. No one can take away from you. That is what defines you. And in verse 10, as Paul says what is proper for women who profess godliness, right? He's saying women who profess godliness, women who say, hey, I love Jesus, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, I have it on my Instagram bio, I've tattooed forgiven and redeemed in Hebrew, like all of these things. Paul is saying, hey, if you have professed Jesus, then demonstrate your faith with good works, not with flamboyancy. Love one another, serve one another, disciple one another. Pursue one another by pointing one another to Jesus. Meet the needs of one another. Ladies, if you, if you profess Christ, then what you do, not just in the context of the local church, what you do is a direct result of who you say Jesus is. What you do is a result of what Jesus has done for you. And so in short, Paul is encouraging women to be women of godly character. He's saying you want to be known for something? Be known for your godly character. Be known for a heart that has been changed by God, has its affection set toward God, and it shows itself in a genuine faith by the which and way you serve others. And when you do this, you will thrive, you will flourish, and the gospel advances. And so what's the posture for women, just like it was for men? What's the posture? One of godliness, a heart that has been transformed by God, one that is repentant. What's the piety? What does that look like? Good works. A heart that has been transformed by the Lord comes out in genuine faith through service. And so when we come back briefly, or let us come back briefly to the Sunday gathering, when we prepare for this time for both men and women, this isn't about gearing up for attention or argument, but to walk in a posture of godliness and humility and the piety of prayer and good works. This pleases God, and the gospel moves forward Now, let's go to verse 11. This is the same thing, posture and piety. We're still looking at that. That's the thread that's connecting all of this. Posture and piety. I couldn't think of a good word. So it's pretty lengthy. Posture and piety in theological development. Let's just say theology, right? That'd be cool. Verse 11. Here we go. Where are we? Okay. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. So in verse 11, we're going to examine posture and piety as it pertains to theology. Here, Paul continues to address the women in the church through Timothy, right? We're going to look at a few things. First thing is, while we're going to look at the hot words, a lot of people get really uh, focused, passionate about two words, right? Quietly and in all submissiveness. And while we're going to look at that, I want to actually start with the word learn, this statement by Paul is a radical statement in the early church. It is a countercultural statement in the context of the early church. And it's ironic because many today consider Paul to be a sexist or machismo. But what he is saying is actually counter-cult- countercultural to the first century. See, when you read verse 11, for Paul to both desire and assume that women in the church are going to be learning would have been seen as new and challenging, as different to the church. Why? Well, when you consider the Greco-Roman world, the educational system, as an example, was designed primarily for men and not women. Women were seen as property women were not to be seen, women were not to be honored. In fact, they were considered as inferior and women were seen as baby producing people. And when those children were born, both the government along with uh, their husbands, I suppose, right, would examine the child. And if the child was to their health standards, then they would keep the child. If they would not, they would put the child in a blanket and leave the child in the streets. Now, you can look at this in the pages of history, particularly in the first and second century of the church. It was actually Christians who were known for going out into the streets and into the alleys to look for these children and take them in. But that's another sermon. So women were seen as inferior, women were seen as property in the Greco-Roman world. In the Jewish synagogue, so that might be some of the false teaching that we're hearing about in Ephesus, in the Jewish synagogues, rabbis were even worse. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, here's what it says. It would be better for the words of the Torah, that is the first five books of the Bible, it would be better for the words of the Torah to be burned that they should be entrusted to a woman. So when Paul says, let a woman learn, he has women in his mind as humans who are created in the image of God. Therefore, for him, he wants them to learn. He needs them to learn. The question is, will learn what? To learn theology. To learn the Word of God. Why? So that they can receive instruction and impart wisdom and instruction into others. Paul wants the women in the church to thrive. And so when you consider the two words, quietly and all submissiveness, the word quietly doesn't mean silent. The word quietly alludes to the posture in which someone learns. It refers to humility. In Luke 10, I'm going to go through this very quickly because we've still got a lot to go in verse, excuse me, in Luke 10, 38 to 42, many of you know the story of Mary and Martha, and they're hanging with Jesus, and what's Martha doing? Man, she's like getting everything ready. She's serving, and at one point, she turns to Jesus, and she says, why won't you tell her to help me, right? You remember that? And so here's what Jesus says, and then we're going to look at the top. Here's what Jesus says. So Martha says, tell her then to help me. The Lord answers, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. What was the good portion? Let's scroll back up. A woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, here it is, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. That's what quietly means. I want to learn like that. Quietly is not silent. Quietly is a posture of humility. The second thing Paul says is all submissiveness. Okay? Man, we got that issue, right? That word submit. But here's the thing. When we are humbled, when we are humbled, we are submitted to whatever authority we're under. And when we're submitted, we're teachable. When Paul says to learn quietly and all submissiveness, this way of learning isn't unique to women. How do men in the church learn? Quietly and with all submissiveness. So, let me encourage you two things. Let me encourage and exhort you with two things, church. The first one is for everybody. If we learn in all submissiveness to the authority of the Word of God, preached and taught by called and qualified men, then are you fully submitted? Submitted? Are you fully submitted to the word of God? See, here's the thing. When Paul says all submission, the submissiveness, you can relate that to the relationship, for instance, between God the Son and God the Father. God the Son fully submitted himself to God the Father. And so if you consider partial submission, like, well, I'm kind of submitted, then that means you're open to rebellion, you're open to manipulation, you're open to control. If you're like, well, I'm submitted, but I got these conditions, so that would be grudging submission. And so you complain, and you grumble, and you grow in resentment and bitterness, but are you fully submitted to the Word of God and its teaching? Because only in full submission can we actually be truly humbled. Only in that humility can we actually be teachable. So that's number one. Here's the second thing I would encourage. This is for the ladies. So Paul says, let the women learn. All right, ladies, remember I love you. Are you learning your Bibles? Are you reading God's word? Are you reading some books on theology? Like, well, I don't have any. Well, I'll, I'll hook you up. Here's, here's my concern. It's not that we don't have some amazing Sheologians. We have some pretty beastly Sheologians. My concern is that many of you don't do anything with that wonderful theology. My concern is that more than disciple others, you criticize them. Some of you have never discipled anyone. Some of you don't want to disciple anyone. Some of you read garbage theology because it's in the Christian book section, at the Christian store, or someone reposted it rather than examining what it really says. Some of you believe some garbage theology, things that are contrary to the teaching of Scripture because it sounds good, it makes sense, and it's readable. Some of you don't want to be known because you don't want to be challenged by other women in the church. But you are ready to criticize. My concern isn't that you're not growing as theologians. My concern is that you have grown as theologians and then don't do anything about it. That is my concern. Some of you ladies might be like, man, rip on the guys. I do, a lot. And you've committed to this local church. We have committed to one another. You are also uh, members that I'm responsible for. I am responsible for you. And I'm going to give an account, not to you, but to God. Some of you don't want to be challenged because you don't like it. Some of you don't want to be known. And some of you don't want to grow. Now, those are for many of the the, the ladies who are growing in their theology. Some of you don't want to grow in your theology. And a lot of it is rooted in, I just don't like it. Hermanas, I need you to be theologians. I need you to be godly, humble, passionate theologians. Women are to be theologians. This pleases God. A posture of humility and the piety of teachability makes a godly woman. Why? Because a godly woman's going to dive into her Bible and search the scriptures which means she's going to know her Bible, which means she doesn't want to waste time with idiots, right? And pour into the areas that God has called her to. Here at Storehouse McAllen, I'm telling you, our women are to be theologians. Passionate, humble, teachable, growing, teaching other theologians. So you heard it from me. need you to be theologians. All right. The next one. Here we go. Posture and piety and discipleship. I also don't like that word. Couldn't think of anything different. Posture and piety and discipleship. This is verses, this is, begins in verse 12. We're going to go all the way through verse 14. So I'll read it. Here we go. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. All right, here we go. Here's the preface, everyone. The preface is that the thread is posture and piety. Too many people want to isolate this passage. Posture and piety. Here we go. Paul says, I do not permit. The word permit is not a suggestion, nor is it a cultural opinion. This is a command coming from the apostleship of Paul on what he is and isn't allowing in the context of the church. And he does two things, or he says two things that a woman is not permitted to do, and it is to teach and exercise authority over a man. Let's start with the word teach. When it comes to the word teach, it seems as though, and we can look at this from other pages of scripture, it seems as though Paul is restricting a particular way of teaching, specifically preaching the word of God from the pulpit. Anyway, sorry. Uh, Preaching the word of God with authority from the pulpit. First, those who preach God's word with authority are called qualified men. I'm just going to be very clear about that, and that's where we stand, and more on that next week. I mean, you could read it yourself. It's not like it's hidden, right? It's 1 Timothy 3. Go ahead. Anyway, God's word, qualified men. Outside of that, however, there are a number of areas that women can and should servant. More on that in a moment. The second thing is exercising authority over a man. This word authority comes from the Greek word called authentine, and there's at least two kinds of them, right? The one that Paul is talking about here is exercising authority uh, when it's concerning disciplinary and doctrinal oversight of the church. That is, once more, the preaching of God's Word from the pulpit and the authority of oversight of the church, this office, which we would call the pastorate, is restricted to called, qualified men. Okay, And Paul concludes that portion. We're still going to keep talking about it. She to remain quiet. There's that word quiet again. It's the same kind of quiet that he references in verse 11. It's the same quiet, that same word that he references when we looked at prayer last week, that we are to lead a quiet life, not a silent life, right? Not that one that it's a low profile. Moving forward, that's relating to posture, not silence, but posture. So Those are the two things that Paul seems to be not permitting women to do. Now let's look at what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying that women can't teach anywhere in the church. This is a belief, even a doctrine, that many churches and pastors and leadership adopt. And we'll look at why in a moment. But some churches would teach, hey, women cannot do anything. They can't teach, they can't disciple, nothing with kids, nothing with one another, nothing. We don't stand there. Paul expects and encourages women to be teachers in other areas of ministry. We're going to keep unpacking this, right? Uh, For instance, Titus 2. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers, not slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Women, you have a responsibility to disciple and teach other women. Say it again. Actually, I'll add to it. You have the opportunity, the responsibility to teach and disciple other women. This goes back to the learning with all quietness and submissiveness. Paul's saying, hey, grow as a theologian and then do something about it. So it's not that he's saying that women can't teach anywhere. We'll come back to that in a moment. Another thing that Paul is not saying is that you are to submit to all men. That is nowhere to be found here. The church submits to pastors who faithfully preach and pastor the church. You know who else does the same thing? Men do the same thing because not all men are called to the pastorate. And finally, Paul is not dismissing or undervaluing the worth and dignity of women. This goes back to saying that they can't teach at all. The reason he's not doing this is because then this would be an entire contradiction and it would be inconsistent with his entire ministry. So he just encouraged the women in Titus 2. In Acts 18, we see Priscilla and her husband disciple Apollos in Philippians or to the church in the Philippians. Part of his church planting team were several women in Romans. He uh, specifically names Phoebe who, according to, to church history. Her role was to take the letter to the Romans to the church, which is one of the most dangerous jobs you can give anyone because it was so dangerous to go on that trail. And Paul recognizes her as a deacon. Additionally, it would be a contradiction to the countless women who have gone before us in utter faithfulness in ministry. And if you want to know who they are, Right outside of the pages of scripture. I'll give you books. And let me add a couple more things. I shouldn't say that way. Yeah, whatever. Let me add a couple more things. Right? The issue is teaching, but you need to remember, teaching is not the only gift. If that's really what you're centered on, but you don't serve the church, you don't disciple others, you don't serve behind the scenes, you don't serve in other capacities, what are you complaining about? The thread of this section is posture and piety, not just an isolated verse. However, Paul continues. He goes on to say, verse 13. Then this connects directly to verse 12. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Transgressor. Hold on. Let's all take a coffee break. All right, here we go. Paul centers his argument, from verse 12, Paul centers his argument not on culture, but in creation, guys tracking? He centers his argument, not on culture, but in creation. So here's ultimately what he's saying? And then we'll dig into it a little bit more. If the church is a family, it it is, if the church is a family, it is not because it's a social design, but because it's modeled after God's ultimate design of a family where the man is a leader of his home, so too called and qualified men in the church the way in which we see the design of roles and leadership in the church ought to be a reflection of God's original design in creation. Moving forward, we read those two verses, 13 and 14, and so we're going to backtrack for a minute to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. In creation... God creates man, right, that's Adam and Eve, and when it comes to Adam, man, Adam had it. It was legit, right? He was created, and he was given authority and given responsibility. He was given authority and a job, like some of you need that. That's really cool, like it's this is day one of being created, and he has a job. So authority and responsibility. Men, you need to know that right now. Some of you want authority, but you don't want the responsibility. Don't work that way. Okay? So, Adam was given authority and responsibility. The other thing that he was given was not just Eve, who was referred to as his helper, right? His, his, his uh, role was to lead her, to protect her, and to love her. And she was deemed his helper. Now, some people don't like that, that term, right? I don't like that Eve was called helper. You know who else is called a helper? And it's the Hebraic word in the Old Testament, and then we see it again in the New Testament. You know who else? The Holy Spirit. Adam was given this role of authority and responsibility, the role of a job, or the responsibility of a job, to lead, protect, and love his family, all under the command of God in the garden. In creation, God creates man and woman in his image, both equal in value, worth, and dignity, but distinct from one another, distinct in function, And so we come to the text. In creation, Eve was deceived. Satan comes onto the scene. He twists the word of God. And you'll even notice in Genesis 3 that she tries to hold close to the words of God. Eventually, she is enticed, and she is deceived, and she sins. She sins against God, and she sins against Adam. Paul is not wrong. She was deceived. We're going to park there real briefly. Churches take that verse, verse 13. Adam was formed first, then Eve. She was deceived, not him. Churches, leaders, uh, pastors, uh, scholars will take that verse, and they will then say, do you see? That's why we cannot trust women in the church. You think I'm joking? Like, This is how many churches operate. It's because of verses 13 and 14 clearly state what Eve has done, therefore, we cannot trust a woman. Therefore, it tells us that women are inferior. Therefore, verses 13 and 14 tell us that women are more susceptible to temptation and they're a lot more gullible. Therefore, they would then lead and say, women, therefore, cannot do anything in the context of the local church. That is a poor interpretation of this verse. So let's go to it. All right? Here it is Adam was formed first. That is true. Adam was formed first. Created first means that he was given authority and responsibility and stewardship. Men, when you get married, that's what you get. You get authority, you get responsibility, and you get stewardship. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. And it is true. Eve was deceived. She had this interaction with Satan, she was deceived and then sin entered into the world, right? Here's the thing. While Eve may have been deceived, where was Adam? Anyone? We'll make it interactive for a second. Where was Adam? Not there. No, he was, there. he was there. Adam was next to her. So that stupid phrase from the beginning of the sermon, right? Like, well, Adam was away, leaders are straight no. No, Adam was there. Gentlemen, no te hagas. He was there. While Eve may have been deceived, Adam sinned willfully with eyes wide open. Eve may have been deceived, but Adam was at fault. When you consider Genesis 3 and then you contrast that with something like Romans 5, the effect of Adam's sin affected all of mankind. Because you need to get this. That's what happens when you sin. It doesn't just affect you. It affects a lot of other people. And in Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, And death through sin. And so death spread to all men, that is, all mankind, because all sinned. Yeah, Eve was deceived, but Adam was at fault. What Adam was supposed to be doing, authority, responsibility, stewardship, he forfeited. He forfeited. It's not a coincidence that it comes back to the passivity of men and the pridefulness of men. It's not like Adam didn't have the words of God either. Adam didn't get up and be like, get the snake out of the way. Like he didn't kick the snake. He didn't grab his wife and say, hey, we need to, we need to go. We're not going to talk to this Creature, we're not going to do any. That's weird. A snake is talking. No, no, it's all good. Right? Like, that's, that's literally what's going... Like, none of that happens. He's there, and he forfeits responsibility, authority, and stewardship. Gentlemen, many of you forfeit responsibility, authority, and stewardship. But you want all the benefits of leadership and manhood with none of the responsibilities. That is not the way it works. That's why we have a man problem. Look at the statistics. 98% of crimes are committed by men. 93% of people in prison are men. The average age of a gamer is 36, who is a man. The average high schooler spends 10,000 hours on video games in the career of their high school life. And when men get bored with uh, joysticks, they turn to other things. Every second of every day, $3,000 are spent on pornography every second of every day. The most common day to look at pornography is Sunday. The least common day to look at pornography is Thanksgiving Day. I guess they have gotta be thankful. There's a man problem. The best kind of men are the ones who are submitted to authority. Those are the best kind of men. They're the ones who are submitted to the word of God. They are the ones who have submitted themselves to other men who are gonna speak into their lives to challenge them and to grow them because an isolated man is a dangerous boy. When men jack it up, it's not simply men being men or boys being boys. When men jack it up, we are witnessing the fruit of the fall. We are witnessing continual evil and sin and corruption. When it comes to the roles of men and women in the home and in the church and some of the debates and even some of the confusion that is involved in there, we didn't get here. We didn't get here because uh, there was a, a flaw in the design. We got here because of our sin. That's why we're here. And so to come back to those two verses, it was Adam who was at fault. Yeah, it may have been Eve who was deceived. It was Adam who was at fault. Men, you will give an account for your families one day. So ladies, I want you to be theologians because I don't want you to be deceived like Eve. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul tells Timothy that there are men who are specifically targeting vulnerable women in their theology and cunning them and taking them away from the true Christ. I want you, I need you to be theologians. And as for the Office of Pastoral Ministry, here at Storehouse McAllen, we believe that this office is restricted to called, qualified men. But in no way does that diminish your value. In fact, my hope is that the fruit of empowerment, if that's a thing, has been visible in our church. We have women who lead massive ministries. We have women who teach The Bible. If, ladies, if you were not at the women's gathering yesterday, you missed out on some sound teaching. Uh, If you didn't know, for 10 months we ran something called a teaching lab for men and women to build Bible teachers so that they can get better in the ministries that they were not only already serving in, but leading. We have some women who are amazing servant leaders and are getting so much done, both before your eyes and even behind the scenes. The roles and design of leadership in the church is a reflection of the roles and design of the home set forth by God in creation. And so now we come to the last verse. Posture and piety in perseverance posture and piety and perseverance. I'm going to be straight up, I'm going to be honest with you. While the preceding two verses may be some of the most controversial verses in scripture, this one verse has got to be one of the most difficult verses in interpreting. There are numerous interpretations for what many think the Apostle Paul is saying. We're going to consider at least one of them. All right, here we go. Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The, the issue here is uh, the wording, the language of the word salvation and childbearing or saved and childbearing. Where am I? Yeah, so saved and childbearing. So let's break it down just for a minute. Right, The word saved in verse 15 is not referring to salvific faith. If, if that were so, then it would contradict all of scripture. This is not saved by faith through Jesus. many believe that the word saved here refers to physical salvation. In other words, that when a woman goes into labor, she will be safe, she will be kept, she will will turn out to be okay uh, during labor. But but tragically, we know that that, uh, many women have not survived labor, so we can't necessarily hang on to that. And so one way to interpret this verse is to examine the word, once again, saved, as it relates to sanctification. Sanctification is the the ongoing process of salvation. It is God's work in us and us responding to that work, right? That is sanctification. <clears throat> and so this still, so we could see that for, for the word saved, but that still doesn't address the, the word childbearing, because not all women are able to or have given, given birth. And while that is true. It seems as though Paul is referring to the distinction uh, that women have over men. He's referring to womanhood and and, and motherhood in that only women can give birth to children and only women can be mothers. So he's drawing a distinction. And so it seems as though it's more of a reference to perseverance because motherhood Many moms, I hope you get a test of this. Motherhood is testing, and it is very, very sanctifying. Um, Paul draws this uh, illustration of of womanhood and motherhood. He, He draws this illustration to say, hey, this part of you was providentially, intentionally, and divinely designed by God for you. No one can take that from you, no matter how hard they try. And so when it comes to this, in motherhood, for instance, raising children is sanctifying because your heart is revealed. And so Paul is making this distinctions, and elsewhere it's like, all all, all women should be mothers in some way or another, biologically or spiritually, because that's what discipleship is. And so Paul is, again, drawing this distinction, again, saying, hey, this has been specifically designed by God for you. And in this, you will flourish if you continue in faith, love, holiness, and self-control. In other words, you will flourish as you depend upon the Holy Spirit and it is not too different from what he has already told Timothy. Hold fast to faith and good conscience. So here, to the women, he's saying hold fast to faith, love, holiness, and self-control. Hold fast as you depend upon the Holy Spirit. Women are distinct from men, and this is not simply by design, but for the glory of God so as we close, God has orchestrated a specific design for the role of men and women in the church and in the home. It is for his glory and it reveals the nature of the relationship between Jesus as the groom and the church as the bride. And while Adam did not take responsibility, Jesus did. And that's the good news that God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ through the virgin birth to live a sinless life and die on a cross in our place and for our sin. And after resurrecting three days later, it is through him that we are not only redeemed and saved and forgiven, but we are restored. This is not a cultural fad, but a created design by a loving God who pursues his bride in spite of her sin and will stop at nothing until all things are restored. So Christian, the thread here was posture and piety. Where are you being passive or prideful, gentlemen? Ladies, what is your posture that is your heart? What does it look like toward God, toward others, toward the church? What does your piety say? Man, I have this uh, profession of godliness, but my piety says differently. Man, how are you doing in leading by prayer? You don't have to be married. We don't need people who complain. We need saints who confess. And for you gentlemen, this isn't, this isn't man up. This is repent and see that God is good. What is your posture like toward the Lord? What does your piety preach? And if you're not a Christian, I'm super thankful that you're here. I say that every week and I mean it. I really do. And I'm sure there are questions, there might even be confusion about the roles of men and women in the church due to what you've experienced, maybe what you've seen, maybe what you've heard from others. And I'm very sorry. And in spite of that, the good news, the good news of Jesus is that he is restoring all things. And because he is restoring all things, his work is not annulled. And so let me invite you, just like I did to the family, let me invite you to repent to turn away from your sin, and to trust in the Lord Jesus. Church, this text wasn't so much about verses 12 through 14. It was about our posture and piety within the church and the home. It is godly posture and piety that are the marks of a heart and hands that have surrendered themselves to the Word of God.